Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. In today's episode of Not Just the Tudors, we're going to be talking about something that some may find upsetting. We're going to examine the allegation that the teenage Princess Elizabeth, also known as Lady Elizabeth and later to be Queen Elizabeth I, was sexually harassed or abused by her stepfather, Thomas Seymour, after Henry VIII's death. This is long before Elizabeth became Queen and long before her virginity became famous. This is Elizabeth as a newly orphaned teenager. And it reflects on a series of incidents that happened in 1547 and 1548, and which were recorded in 1549. The purpose of today's episode is to examine the evidence systematically and to see if we can reach a conclusion about what exactly did happen between Elizabeth and Seymour in these years. To do this, I'm joined by Dr Elizabeth Norton. Dr Norton has written many wonderful books on the lives of Tudor women, and indeed one book called just that, The Lives of Tudor Women. And she's written books on Henry VIII's wives, and on people like Margaret Beaufort and Bessie Blount. You might recognise her voice from her appearance on the recent series The Boleyns on BBC Two. And she examined the case of Thomas Seymour and Princess Elizabeth in forensic detail in her book The Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor, published by Head of Zeus. Dr. Norton, it's an absolute joy to speak to you about this extraordinary topic. I mean, it's a sort of real life, almost criminal investigation that we're going to be carrying out at a distance of almost 500 years. And you've written this wonderful book about it where you've examined all of the evidence in forensic detail. And so let us start perhaps by picking up the story in February 1547. So 28th of January, Henry VIII died, his orphaned nine-year-old son Edward had become king and Edward's half-sister Princess Elizabeth, though normally now known as Lady Elizabeth, for reasons we shan't go into, was 13 years old, also an orphan, and was sent to live with her stepmother Catherine Parr. And it's there where Thomas Seymour saw her. So would you like to introduce us to Seymour and to this situation? Of course. So Thomas Seymour is the uncle of the new king, Edward VI. So his sister was Jane Seymour, Henry VIII's third wife. So 
everyone's incredibly inbred at the Tudor court. <laughs> everyone's related to everyone. And Thomas is, of course, no exception. So he is a very eligible figure. He's sort of been right at the heart of the Tudor court since his sister's marriage. But actually, no one's really had that much use for him. There's a contemporary quote that says he's handsome, he's really good looking, he has this sort of fashionable auburn beard, but he's somewhat empty of matter. So he's not the sharpest tool in the box, if you like. Most notably, under Henry VIII, he is put in command of a fleet to sail to Boulogne to reprovision the town. And he accidentally crashes his fleet into the Isle of Wight. So Thomas is ambitious. He is very, very keen. He wants to be employed. He wants to have a job. But he's not necessarily up there with his brother Edward, who becomes the Lord Protector under Edward VI. And Thomas wants to share the power. He wants to be governor of the king. He wants his brother to be Lord Protector and he wants to be governor. And he's very much kept away from the centre of power. I think empty of matter is going to become my new phrase. So on the 25th of February, 1547, Seymour sent Elizabeth a letter. And this is where the whole story starts, really. What did it say and how did she respond? So we have this letter and it's a slightly controversial letter. The only surviving version of it is in Italian, much, much later from Gregorio Letti, who comes up with these sort of remarkable letters. And there's quite a lot of doubt over whether or not they're authentic. Because obviously they've been translated into Italian, I think there are potential doubts over the exact wording. But I think we can see the basis of truth in a lot of these. So I think they're certainly possible. I think we can't discount them. So this letter is a proposal of marriage to the 13-year-old Princess Elizabeth because Thomas is on the lookout for a royal bride. He's unmarried, unusually so actually, he's never married. One source claims that he proposes first to Princess Mary, the elder of the royal princesses and heir to the throne, but his brother refuses to even countenance the match and actually laughingly says, you know, she'd never accept you anyway. So he then goes to Elizabeth, who's a much more likely candidate for his wife. She's not the heir to the throne. She's younger. She's more likely to be receptive, at least Thomas thinks. So this letter apparently proposes marriage. Very interesting that we have this process of translation at best. So at best, we've got something that was in English, is translated into Italian, and then we're translating it back to English and the possible loss along that way. But actually, of course, you're also raising the possibility that this might not have been genuine. Yes, absolutely. There is a question mark over the letter. We can see from Thomas's later conduct that he has an interest in Elizabeth, so it certainly seems plausible. But I think with the letter, to some extent, it's likely to be genuine, but I don't think we can take it as a word-for-word truth. Right. And Seymour, at this point in time, is, what, 38? Yeah, so he's late 30s, much, much older than Elizabeth. He's the generation above. He's her half-brother's uncle. Now, do we have Elizabeth's response to him? We do, according to Letty, and it refuses him, but in quite a positive way. So, you know, saying she's much too young, she needs to mourn for her father, but leaving the possibility open that his advances might well be welcome in a few years' time. Okay. And then at some point in the months that follow, but probably in March, Thomas Seymour marries Catherine Parr, Elizabeth's stepmother. And it was done secretly, and there's some debate about when it happened. But assuming Letty's right, and these are accurate sources, it seems to have been done probably within a month or so at most of Elizabeth's rejection. 
And Elizabeth, as we've said already, was now living with Catherine and then by now in Chelsea and then later at Hamworth in Middlesex. And apart from those apparent letters, most of what we know about the case from here on comes from Elizabeth's servants. So could you talk about how we know what we know and the circumstances in which the evidence was obtained before we think about what it tells us? Almost all of the specific details we have from the Seymour scandal comes from Elizabeth when she was interrogated and also Catherine or Kate or Cat Ashley, who is her lady mistress. She's her governess, effectively. So she has been with Elizabeth for years. She has raised her since her earlier childhood. She is undoubtedly the person that Elizabeth is closest to. It's always said that Catherine Parr fills the motherly role, and she does, but of course the role of mother is different in the 16th century for an upper-class girl. So actually the day-to-day care is Kate Ashley or Pat Ashley. We also have Thomas Parry, who is a very close servant of Elizabeth, so he's effectively running her household. He later becomes treasurer when she becomes queen. He's a very important official to her. So we have these three voices. They are all interrogated after Thomas Seymour is arrested in early 1549. They are separated almost immediately. Kate and Parry are arrested and sent to prison and Elizabeth is interrogated at Hatfield. So we have their accounts of interrogations. So they're not independent sources because of course they have spoken and it's very very clear in the records that they have colluded. I mean they repeat like an absolute mantra that they planned no marriage or they planned nothing without the council's consent and it really is obviously something they've agreed. If they stick to this line that nothing happened without the council's consent then nothing will happen without the council's consent and they will be in the clear if you like. However the details they give are very detailed. They are very embarrassing for Elizabeth. These are not details that she would want to freely give out. And I think that is what makes it so interesting and makes it seem very truthful, is that actually they're not going to make this detail up because it is incredibly compromising for Elizabeth. I think it does suggest that there may have been more that they've decided not to reveal because they've definitely colluded. In general, the stories match. There are a few points where there are differences in the things that Parry says. Elizabeth says they contradict each other, but in general, they match quite closely. But I think the fact that they are prepared to admit to the details that they do speaks very strongly for the truth of what we know was happening at Chelsea and at Hanworth. And that's really interesting because, of course, they're going to say they weren't going to do anything without the council's consent because that is the crime that they're being charged with. Under the terms of Henry VIII's will, Elizabeth has to marry with the council's consent. And so that's a situation that could look treasonous if they don't act appropriately. And otherwise, I think your suggestion about the fact that actually there may be more to the story than they're revealing is fascinating. That details disagree doesn't disprove the story. In fact, it almost does the opposite, doesn't it? If we think about the working of human memory, we know that we get things wrong and our fallibility means that actually if the accounts disagree slightly, it makes them more plausible. But also, I take your point that they're probably colluding. And do you think that they are at this point sort of hanging Seymour out to dry? Is there an element of that in their testimony as well? Or is it just about defending themselves? I think it's primarily about defending themselves. And we can see from Elizabeth's later conduct that she remains fond of Thomas Seymour. And he was a very popular man. 
People liked him. In fact, his servants formed a sort of club that they called the Old Admiralty, long into Elizabeth's reign, where they would meet up and sort of drink his health and kind of remember their days with Thomas. So he was a popular, well-liked figure. And I think Elizabeth was very, very fond of Thomas. She later hung his portrait with some verses inscribed, sort of speaking of his virtues, in Somerset House, which was built by his brother and sort of chief enemy, if you like, the protector. And again, I think that suggests that Elizabeth actually was fond of Thomas Seymour. And her evidence suggests that she was. Kate Ashley admits that she could see that Elizabeth had a liking for Thomas. And Kate's husband also was concerned that it was clear that Elizabeth was interested in Thomas. So I don't think they necessarily are hanging Thomas out to dry in their testimony. Because actually, as long as nothing is planned without the council's consent, it's not a crime. There's no reason why Elizabeth can't engage in a flirtation and possibly starting to think about marriage as long as she doesn't actually marry without the council's consent, which comes up time and again. So I don't think they are hanging Thomas out to dry. I think they are concerned primarily with self-preservation because it is quite clear that after Catherine Parr's death, there was a flirtation with the idea of marriage to Thomas Seymour, at least on the part of Elizabeth's servants and probably Elizabeth herself too. Because I always think at this point, Elizabeth is Edward VI's sister. He is most likely going to grow up and have his own family. Mary is next in line to the throne. She might marry and have children at this stage. Elizabeth is most likely facing a future kind of on the edges of the royal family at this stage in her life. Her hopes of the throne are minuscule in 1548. She's most likely looking towards a foreign diplomatic marriage, although her legitimacy is so questionable that actually she may not even get that. She may end up on the shelf a bit like Mary. So marrying the king's uncle is actually a really good match for Elizabeth. So the information that we have from Kate Ashley and Thomas Parry, particularly, is that from June 1547, so when Elizabeth and Catherine are living together, and then Seymour arrives, Elizabeth started to receive early morning visits from him. What happened? So they tend to follow a fairly familiar pattern. He enters her room, bare-legged and in his slippers, according to the account. So he's not dressed, he's in a state of undress. On most occasions, at least to start with, he finds Elizabeth in bed and he says good morning to her and he moves as though he's going to come into the bed with her. She shrinks back into the pillows. He sometimes tickles her in bed. He sometimes sort of actually climbs on top of the bed. There's one occasion where Kate Ashley is watching, has risen early to try and catch Seymour and he actually climbs into the bed. On other occasions, Elizabeth is already up and he slaps her on the buttocks familiarly as she sort of runs to her maidens because she sleeps in a room by herself, which is actually very unusual. Apparently, according to the account, her room is so little at Chelsea that they can't fit another bed in, which always seems quite surprising. I I get the impression Kate Ashley is quite newly married, and I suspect that she preferred to sleep with her own husband at that stage, but she's also quite possessive of Elizabeth. We know that she doesn't like it when other maidens or ladies sleep with Elizabeth, because Elizabeth is very much her surrogate daughter, if you like. So... I get the impression that it's Kate who is not keen on Elizabeth sharing the room with anyone but her. But it does leave Elizabeth quite unprotected. The maidens are in the next room. It's obviously got a connecting door, but she's in the room by herself. And she does start to make an effort to get out of bed early to avoid Thomas finding her in bed. What 
surprised Kate, who is a witness to a lot of this, is that when Elizabeth was up and dressed and reading, Thomas would simply look in the door and say good morning and move on. It's only when she's actually in a state of undress that he shows the interest and comes into the room. So state of undress, for those who are wondering, we probably mean they're in their shift, their sort of linen smock. It probably comes down to the knees or something like that. Yes. But there wouldn't really be anything worn underneath that for either a man or a woman. No, so they're very much not naked and night clothes, as you say, are more elaborate, I think, than they are today. For a Tudor princess or high-ranking noblewoman, you know, it's very much undressed. When you think of all the layers that they would normally wear, very much just at the shift level. And we probably ought to talk here a little bit about the Tudor age of consent, although I immediately want to point out, obviously, by this point, Seymour is married to Catherine Parr, so there is that too. But let's think about what a 13 or 14 year old girl was thought to be in the Tudor period. From a modern perspective, a 13 or 14 year old girl is a child and cannot give consent. But what was the situation for someone of aristocratic or royal birth in Tudor England? So from a modern perspective, we're talking about a child, but this is not at all how she would have been viewed to contemporaries. 14 is very much marriageable in the Tudor period, and absolutely an age where you would expect a marriage to be consummated. It does vary. So where a husband is much, much older, there is concern in contemporary manuals about society that actually it's not particularly proper to be consummating a relationship with a teenager, particularly, but 14 is absolutely marriageable. And, you know, 14-year-olds are mothers in the Tudor period sometimes. So Elizabeth is marriageable. You can be married before 14. It's not considered proper in general to consummate the marriage before you turn 14. It happens because to have a valid marriage, you need consummation. So they need to have sex because until a couple have sex, their marriage isn't valid. Well, it's voidable. It's not a fully performed contract, if you like, because you need the promise and you need the sexual relations. So girls before 14 occasionally have their marriages consummated where they are properly high ranking. So Elizabeth's great-grandmother, Margaret Beaufort, is a case in point. She gives birth to the future Henry VII when she's 13 years old. So Elizabeth is not a child by contemporary standards. Now, Ashley protests in the depositions that she's concerned about the visits. Do you take her words at face value here? I think she is concerned about the visits to a certain extent. She's clearly quite charmed by Thomas and was quite keen for him to marry Elizabeth before he married Catherine Parr. From what we can see, she comes upon him in the gardens in St James's Palace, for example, before his marriage to the Queen has been published. In some ways, kind of flirts on Elizabeth's behalf with him, if you like. And she's the one who sort of pushes them together. You know, she kind of again pushes Elizabeth towards him when she's a bit shy to dance with Thomas. So I think she is interested in Thomas on Elizabeth's behalf because actually she finds him quite charming. And he is a good match for Elizabeth. But of course, as soon as he marries the Queen, he's no longer on the table. You know, Elizabeth can't marry him. He's married to somebody else. And I think Kate does start to get quite worried because actually her own husband warns her that everyone can see Elizabeth is interested in the Admiral. So Thomas Seymour, who's Lord Admiral. And of course, Kate's neck is on the block. If Elizabeth did have a sexual relationship with Thomas Seymour, actually Kate Ashley is the person who should be protecting her. So she does seem to push back a bit. First off, she tries to make sure she's there when Thomas visits, tries to make Elizabeth get up and get dressed before 
Thomas visits. And Elizabeth doesn't like mornings. And later on, she says she's no morning woman when she's queen. And she's not keen on getting up in the morning. I think Kate becomes worried. There's one incident where Thomas chases Elizabeth sort of behind the bed curtains and she won't come out. It seems to get quite tense. It's being played as a game by Thomas, but actually Elizabeth won't come out and it goes on for longer than you would expect it to go on. And actually Elizabeth's maids then go to Kate and say, you know, we're actually quite concerned. It's difficult for Kate to make a direct approach to Thomas because, of course, he is the king's uncle. He's the head of the household, married to the queen. So she at first tries speaking to one of his servants. That doesn't work. And then she actually does go to Thomas and talk about how it's evil spoken of and how he's got to stop these visits. But he again, he just gets defensive. He basically says he'll go to his brother to complain about how he's spoken about you know, and how he means no harm. And that's kind of as much as Kate can do directly with Thomas because he is so far above her socially. I mean, he's right at the top of the Tudor pile at that stage. Though I always wonder, again, being totally sceptical here, but I always wonder whether she's saying she approached him because, again, it makes her look above board. But let's take her at a word there. The other person, of course, who should have been protecting Elizabeth is Catherine Parr. And I have a bit of a soft spot for Catherine Parr. But there are a few occasions in the autumn of this year, 1547, which seem rather troubling. So Elizabeth, now 14, and there are a couple of occasions on which Catherine joins Seymour on his early morning visits. And then there's the incident in the garden in which he cut at her gown while Catherine held her. So tell me more about these occasions and what possible interpretations you think we can put on them? Catherine's involvement is really interesting because as you say she joins Thomas for these tickling sessions in the bed and she holds Elizabeth while he slashes her dress and so she's kind of giving permission if you like. Kate when she complains to Thomas says that you know it's fine when he comes with the Queen that's fine but it's evil spoken of when he comes by himself so it does add a different complexion to it. I have a soft spot for Catherine too. I think it's difficult to square the Catherine of Henry VIII, the first English woman to publish under her own name in English. This upstanding, this religious woman with the woman who is involved and at least certainly seems to know about her husband's relationship with her stepdaughter. I think there's quite a lot unspoken in the marriage. So, for example, Thomas was apparently, according again to these depositions, he was known as an oppressor in the household. There is apparently one incident that I think Kate relates where a male groom was in a room alone with Catherine for a brief period when the door was closed and Thomas flew into a rage. The implication is, of course, that he suspected adultery. So I wonder if Catherine was frightened of Thomas because, of course, a Tudor wife, even a queen, is subject to their husband. We can see from her accounts that he is taking her money into his own hands. So very large sums of Catherine's money, because, of course, she's quite a wealthy individual as a queen, is being passed direct to Thomas. So he's clearly taking control some level in the household. So I suspect that there is some level of emotional abuse in the relationship and that she's already sort of realised that she hasn't chosen particularly wisely. To some extent, participating in Thomas's romps, if you like, that's what it's always traditionally been portrayed as, but she participates and treats them as romps, then A, it sort of protects Elizabeth because, of course, Thomas is no longer alone with her, and B, it downplays at least the seriousness, so it diverts attention from what is going on in the household. So I think we can see Catherine as less powerful in the household than I think perhaps we would tend to view her based on her time as a queen, because she is now Thomas's wife. 
And I think there's a limit to what she can do to stop Thomas's visits without causing a scandal. That's a really fascinating reading because I've always thought, oh, you know, is she just seeing this as mere hijinks or does she see Elizabeth as a kind of young girl infatuated with her husband or is she actually blindly resisting what's in front of her face? But your reading of this is a very intuitive one and it sort of holds all the possible meanings of Catherine holding Elizabeth whilst he cuts away at her gown or whatever to hold could be she's holding her down or it could be she's embraced her arms around her to protect her or she's sort of lovingly participating in horseplay but to see that actually maybe Catherine Parr was also in some ways without overplaying the word a victim of at least a controlling situation is a very interesting spin on things What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. So November 1547, Catherine Parr and Seymour moved to London for several months. They left Elizabeth behind. And it's interestingly during that trip to London that Catherine became pregnant, which was a surprise to everyone because it was her fourth marriage and she was mid-30s by this point and hadn't become pregnant before. And then only in February 1548 did Elizabeth join them in London again. And so does it carry on again in early 48? It seems to. 
I mean, it's quite difficult with the depositions to get the firm dates. Again, which in many ways I think reflects quite well on the accounts in that they don't know particular dates. But certainly the interest seems to continue. It's around this time that Catherine seems to change her attitude towards it. We know that she's unwell during her pregnancy. She seems to suffer from morning sickness. The fact that she's expecting this baby after all this time, I think very much is a life-changing experience for Catherine, of course, because she's had four husbands. As far as we know, she's never been pregnant before. Of course, she may have been, but she certainly doesn't have any living children. So I think it alters her perspective and perhaps causes her to take more of an issue with what is going on. But again, it does seem to still be continuing. There's an interesting piece of evidence that doesn't come from the depositions, which is the letter that Catherine Parr sent Seymour in early June 1548, and which Elizabeth inscribed on the reverse side in Latin, noli mitan, and then changed to nolito mitangre. Tell us what it means and what you think she might have meant by it. Originally, it's thou shall not touch me or thou do not touch. And then it's let him not touch me. So it seems much more plaintive. I mean, it's really interesting because it's on a letter that Catherine has written and has sent to her husband while he's at court. And it's during the period when they are planning their move to Sudley Castle. You can imagine a sort of hustle and bustle in Catherine's household. And the fact that Elizabeth has written this on the letter very much suggests that it is meant for Seymour. I tend to look at it as it's her attempt to get Thomas to leave her alone, if you like. I think it's difficult to read that in any other way and that she doesn't want him to touch her. She wants him to leave her alone. The fact that it's written while he's not currently in the household, I think is interesting because, you know, again, when he's in the household, he is supreme. He's the head of the household. Catherine as a queen has some authority, but it's Thomas who is top dog in the household. So she feels confident to write this when he's not there, which I think is quite interesting. Do you think there's anything to be drawn from reflecting on the fact that this phrase, at least the original version that she uses, the kind of in the second person, Nolimitangere is used, of course, in Thomas Wyatt's Lister Hunt, poem to Anne Boleyn, which hadn't been published by this point, and comes before that from the Latin Vulgate, which is when Mary Magdalene meets Jesus from the tomb and he says, you know, do not touch me before I ascend to my father. Is there anything there that we can reflect on, I suppose, beyond Elizabeth's learning? I would love to make the parallel with Thomas Wyatt's poem, which is, of course, about Anne Boleyn. And it's possible Elizabeth has seen it. I mean, these poems are circulated at court. We know that. It would be really interesting. Thomas Seymour, you know, he's quite outspoken. He's quite bold. There's a really interesting account where Elizabeth is present and someone mentions Boulogne and he says not a word about Boulogne. And Boulogne and Berlin are pronounced fairly interchangeably in the period. So it's just a kind of tantalising suggestion that he is making a pun, effectively, probably, because Anne Boleyn is persona non grata at this point. You don't mention Anne Boleyn's name in public. She is legally, at least, a condemned traitor. You know, she's an adulteress. She's incestuous. She's not the sort of person you would mention in public, if you like. And Elizabeth is tarred by her association with Anne. We all know the charges against Anne are completely trumped up. But there is a sense that character traits are inherited in this period. And there is a danger that Elizabeth will turn out like her mother if she's allowed to. So I think it's quite interesting that we do have this sense of perhaps Thomas 
is prepared to mention Anne Boleyn to Elizabeth. And we know Elizabeth is fascinated by Anne. We can see it in the way she treats her maternal family when she becomes queen, her closeness to her maternal family. And also probably in the checkers ring, which is the ring Elizabeth wore with the portrait of a woman wearing a French hood, probably Anne Boleyn. So I would like to make the parallel. Nolly me Tangeri, I mean, when I first read, it screamed Thomas Wyatt to me and Anne Boleyn. So I think it's a possibility, but I think we can't say with certainty that Elizabeth had seen that poem, unfortunately. She would certainly know the biblical references. And it's a really interesting phrase to use. A few days after that inscription, according to Thomas Parry, Catherine found Seymour and Elizabeth alone together. And it seems to have been the catalyst for Elizabeth leaving or being sent away from the house Catherine and Seymour shared. What do you think happened then? What do we know and what do you make of it? So we have the claim that Catherine came upon the two alone together. So it comes from Thomas Parry. The fact that he is prepared to admit that, I would say, suggests that it's truthful because, again, it's embarrassing for Elizabeth that she's been caught embracing a man. And it is very serious. Earlier during the relationship with Seymour, during the Seymour scandal, Catherine had complained to Kate Ashley that Thomas had told her that Elizabeth had been embracing a man and he'd seen it through the gallery window and it causes a real furore in the household. Kate eventually concludes that it was the Queen made the story up because she was jealous and she wanted her to keep a closer watch. But, you know, embracing an unrelated man in the period for Elizabeth is very serious. So I would suggest that is the cause of the fallout because we have it in the deposition and it seems an unlikely thing to make up unless, of course, there's something worse and that that is the better option, which is possible. Catherine definitely falls out with Kate Ashley. I mean, Kate says it, and again, there's sort of no reason why she would make this up. She falls out with Kate, she falls out with Elizabeth, she falls out with Thomas. You know, it seems to have caused a real stir. But of course, Catherine Parr needs to be really, really careful because she's the guardian of Elizabeth. Elizabeth is second in line to the throne. And, you know, if there is a hint that Elizabeth has been involved in an illicit relationship with Catherine Parr's husband, they're all going to fall. Thomas, Catherine Parr, Kate Ashley, Elizabeth herself, they're all going to be in a lot of trouble. So it is very much brushed under the carpet, but it does seem to be the catalyst for Catherine arranging for Elizabeth to stay with Anthony Denny at Chessent. Interestingly, Thomas accompanies her on the first leg of that journey, most likely for appearances sake, I would say, because it must have been very, very tense because they need to make sure that there isn't a scandal attached to Elizabeth. So do you think this is a decision by Catherine to send Elizabeth away? Is that how you perceive it, that that she's intervened possibly in response to this moment? Or, I mean, another possible reading perhaps could be that she sends her away to protect her. By this point, I guess Catherine is six months pregnant or so and knew that she would soon be going into her confinement. She wouldn't be there to protect Elizabeth. Or do you think Elizabeth perhaps chose to go away? So I think Elizabeth is sent away. That's my reading. I suspect Elizabeth may have wanted to be sent away. There's definitely protection because Catherine Parr is clearly very fond of Elizabeth. I mean, I think, you know, even though some of the things Catherine does during this incident are questionable, she's obviously 
very fond of Elizabeth. She's been raising her since she was nine years old, effectively, although, you know, as I said earlier, Tudor mothers for royal girls, at least, are not a daily presence. But she seems to be genuinely fond of Elizabeth. So I think protection is a major reason. Also keeping up appearances because they can't afford a scandal. And I think my reading is this event reaches the point where Thomas can't dress it up as playful fun. You know, he's just being a stepfather and he's fond of this girl. You know, so they're probably caught embracing. There may be something more going on, but it's reached the point where he has to admit that actually he's gone too far with Elizabeth. So I think there are many elements to sending away, but I do think it's Catherine who makes a decision. Elizabeth is obviously sent to her friends you know, a place where she can sort of be kept quite safely and far away from Thomas. And that summer, Elizabeth was ill with migraines and jaundice, digestive problems. Her periods were being erratic. And about 60 years later, there was, I guess, what one might call an urban legend starting to circulate that Elizabeth had been pregnant during this time. Do you think we can refute this charge? Yeah, I do. There were certainly some contemporary rumours. I mean, Elizabeth herself in early 1549 writes to protect her to say, I've heard there are rumours that I'm pregnant and I want to come to London to be seen so people can see that I'm not. The major rumour comes through Jane Dormer, who is roughly a contemporary of Elizabeth, but she is a Catholic, very close to Elizabeth's sister, Mary. She later marries the Duke of Ferrer, a Spanish duke, and goes to live out her life in Spain. She commissioned a biography from one of her servants, and in it there is this insinuation that Elizabeth bore a child in secret, and the child was then murdered at birth. The story itself, as you say, it's an urban legend, but actually when you follow it back, there does seem to be some truth in this account of this mysterious birth where a midwife is taken blindfolded and then the baby is thrown in the fire. The midwife herself seems to exist, possibly, but the fact that it's linked to Elizabeth, I think it is just slander. It comes much, much later, admittedly through a woman who knew her, but Jane Dormer certainly has no affection for Elizabeth. She is also the one who repeats the claim that Mary I thought Elizabeth looked like Mark Smeaton, one of Anne Boleyn's alleged lovers. Okay, so just clarify this for me. So the story is circulating six years later, but you said that Elizabeth herself spoke out to refute it in 1549. Which is it? Is it kind of later or earlier? Or, or is it just that there's a, at a later stage, the story is resurrected? So different stories. So claims that she's pregnant, at least Elizabeth says she's heard a rumour of pregnancy in early 1549, but the story of an illicit birth and then a murdered baby, it's circulating in the period, it's not attributed to Elizabeth until Jane Dormer, and then, you know, she sort of makes all sorts of insinuations, you know, she also refers to the protector as the cuckold, her servant does through her. Okay, so she's got these two great stories that she joins together at a later stage. At least Elizabeth seems to have thought that there were rumours that she was pregnant in 1549, but it's not linked to the Jane Dormer story of the birth at that stage. That's later, albeit linked by a contemporary. And actually, it seems to me that many of the symptoms that Elizabeth is describing could simply have just been an illness that we can't diagnose at this stage. But it also just sounds like stress. Yeah, and we know Elizabeth often suffered symptoms of illness when she was stressed. I mean, most notably when she was 
being sent to the tower under Mary I. She at first of all seems to have feigned illness and then when she was forced to set out she actually does seem to have fallen properly ill. Her body swelled up and you know it's kind of a mysterious illness. So I think the stakes are very very high for Elizabeth throughout her life. She often is facing potentially imprisonment possibly you know something worse. So I think stress is very believable and I think we can discount a pregnancy. The symptoms are, they could be symptoms of many, many things. There's certainly no firm evidence that there is a baby born. In August, Catherine Parr went into confinement or thereabouts and gave birth to a daughter. Very sadly, on the 5th of September, a week after giving birth, she died. And soon after this point, you note that Seymour sent his nephew, John, to accompany Elizabeth, just turning 15 now, as she went to set up her own household at Hatfield. And according, again, to Thomas Parry, Seymour gave his nephew a message to pass on to Elizabeth. What was the message? So he asked whether her buttocks had grown any greater in size, which is quite familiar, to be honest. And of course, we know that he has been spanking her on occasion during the early visit. So it's a very indiscreet, very impolite, very socially improper message to be making to the second in line to the throne. And quite extraordinary to be making this as his wife has just died. Yes, and a lot of the behaviours straight after Catherine's death from various parties, it doesn't come across very well, particularly to us in the 21st century. In fairness to Thomas, he seems to have been genuinely grieved by Catherine's death in that while she was dying, he actually at one stage tries to lie on the bed next to her and, you know, try and calm her down. He was so shocked by her death that his first reaction was to send Jane Grey home, who he had been raising in his household in an attempt to marry her to the king. But he very quickly recovered himself and goes back to go and fetch Jane Grey. And he very clearly restarts his scheme. He gets over Catherine's death very quickly, if you like, and he's certainly thinking about another wife. Kate Ashley as well, again, according to her own account, breaks the news to Elizabeth of Catherine's death, you know, saying your old suitor is now free again. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, effectively that, which is pretty shocking when you think that, you know, she's announcing the fact that Catherine Parr has died, Elizabeth's stepmother. So thoughts are turning to the fact that Thomas Seymour is once again the most eligible man in England, as Kate refers to him. Yes, poor Elizabeth. She hadn't had a chance to make things up with Catherine after that incident of her being found with Seymour. And it must have been very hard on her that Catherine's died and she hasn't seen her. Yeah, so they do make up via letter over the summer, but no, she hasn't seen her. I and mean, in fact, she doesn't see either Catherine or Seymour again after she's sent away to Chesson. That's the last time she sees both of them. Wow, that's worth thinking about in terms of the long-term effects of what happens, that they will both die. Okay, well, Elizabeth now has her own household. She's definitely considered an adult now. And it seems that Seymour, as you've said, really did now try and woo her. At least rumours are circulating to that effect. What do we know of Elizabeth's attitude? She seems keen, at least from the depositions. As my reading is, she's interested in the marriage. And again, he is the most eligible man unmarried in England, as Kate Ashley puts it. She's bashful. At one stage, Kate asks permission to go to London. She wants to meet with Thomas Seymour. And Elizabeth says no, because it will look like she sent her. She doesn't want to look like she is trying to accept Seymour's advances. However, Thomas Parry goes to Parliament that autumn because he's a member of Parliament. And he is very assiduously courted by Thomas Seymour, at least according to Parry's own deposition. So Parry goes to Seymour and Seymour shows very flattering interest in him. The implication is they are discussing a future marriage. Thomas Seymour makes suggestions for 
Elizabeth to exchange some of her lands so that they better match his, you know, so they'd have a better landed interest. He also offers to lend Elizabeth his London townhouse so that she can come to London. It's looking very much like marriage and certainly that's what Kate and Elizabeth seem to think. When Parry comes back, Kate actually asks Parry, do you think he's moving towards marriage? And, you know, Parry says he can't tell. Again, this is from the deposition. So, you know, this is what he's prepared to admit. There's a disagreement between Elizabeth and Parry's account at this stage, where Parry says that he actually asks Elizabeth bluntly, you know, would you marry Thomas Seymour? And Elizabeth says, you know, she's too embarrassed. She doesn't want to answer that. Whereas Parry says that Elizabeth says, you know, she'll do what God puts into her mind, which again, it doesn't seem like an outright refusal in any way. My reading of the depositions is that Kate and Parry are pushing Elizabeth towards a marriage to Thomas Seymour. I suspect they're motivated by keeping her in England. Kate probably wants to see her married, but wants to see her married where she can stay with her. But my reading is Elizabeth is interested too. And, you know, we're obviously some way before the Virgin Queen. You know, she is unlikely to become queen at this stage. She's most likely going to be the king's sister until she dies or, you know, the aunt of the king. So marrying Thomas Seymour is socially very good for her. It will keep her in England. She'll be a great lady. You know, she'll run a great household, very close to the king. She'll be his aunt and his sister. The accounts of her evidence are less obviously inclined towards marriage than Parry and Kate, who clearly think that they are negotiating a marriage. But we can see that she's interested. You know, she sounds them both out and particularly wants to know what Parry has said. And Parry keeps going back. He goes back to Seymour again in January when he's back in London. Can I just try out a different reading on you? Because, I mean, one of the pieces of evidence that comes up is that Kate Ashley says that Elizabeth blushes when Seymour's spoken of. And I was thinking about that and thinking about whether that is a fancy, an affection, or whether there is an element of shame there. You know, whether... Let's just try this thought exercise. Catherine Parr's her beloved stepmother, who has died. She has died after Catherine has found Elizabeth with Seymour. Elizabeth hasn't seen Catherine since then, although she has tried to be reconciled to her by writing to her. Her beloved stepmother has then died, and you can imagine a teenager sort of perhaps feeling that they must be in some way guilty, (laughs) as we all do worry about what we should have done when someone dies. I wish I'd done that and all that sort of stuff. And then he appears to be trying to marry her. Do you think there's a confusion perhaps in her? Maybe she does feel affectionate towards him, but also maybe she feels ashamed. And also this comment about the great buttocks, it's just a very weird thing. As you said, very familiar, but also it's hardly romantic. It's hardly a sort of nice, enticing line. There's a brutality, a vulgarness about it and a kind of directness that feels offensive and frankly abusive you know maybe there's another spin on the whole thing what do you think of that (laughs) yeah it's definitely a possessive comment I would say he's clearly staked his claim to Elizabeth yeah I mean I think shame is possible as well and I think Elizabeth is very conflicted and that does come out in the sources you know for example John Astley says to Kate his wife that he is concerned that you know Elizabeth seems to like Thomas Seymour and seems to be interested and even when Elizabeth seems afraid or is sort of shrinking back or trying not to be caught in bed by Thomas there is this sense that she's also kind of interested in him so I think it is very conflicting for her and of course she's a teenager at this stage and I mean you know 
human physiology hasn't changed. She's 15 years old. I think it's very flattering, but I think it is quite worrying as well because she is out by herself. As you say, she's in her own household. She's set up as an adult. She has no parent left. She was orphaned when Henry VIII died, but with Catherine Parr, she's sort of finally orphaned. That's it. There is no parent. Um, The closest she has is her half-sister, Mary. And although they seem to enjoy a, a pleasant sisterly relationship at this stage, you know, there's no indication that they are particularly close. So I think there is an element of that. I think... In many ways, we're used to seeing Elizabeth as a political figure, a queen. You know, she knows her own mind. And I think we're very much in the infancy of that at this stage. So she's not entirely her own woman. In some ways, it's like the way, you know, Kate asked permission to go to London. Elizabeth says no. And yet her servants are still negotiating with Thomas, even though she said no to it. But Elizabeth is again interested in what they have to say. So even though she said no, she still actually wants to know what's going on and is sort of interested. So yeah, I think there's conflict. But I do get the sense from my reading of the depositions that she is interested in marriage to Thomas. Because of course, marriages in the Tudor period, I mean, you know, they are quite short quite often. You know, childbirth carries off a lot of women. People do move on through multiple spouses and often quite closely related to each other. And actually, there's an interesting implication of what you've just said as well, which is if Catherine Parr was Elizabeth's stepmother, in some ways, Thomas Seymour is her stepfather and is literally old enough to be her father. He's 40 by this point in time. And this is a father from whom she has been ruptured in various ways. I imagine that something of that search for a father figure might be there as well. Maybe I'm being a bit too psychoanalytical of historical figures, but it just sort of feels like that might be playing into it. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there aren't that many people of Elizabeth's rank in England at that point, because the royal family is incredibly depleted. And Thomas is sort of quasi-royal. He's the brother of the Lord Protector. He's the uncle of the king. So actually, there aren't that many people who could fulfil this kind of father figure role, if you like, with Elizabeth. And he is, of course, also her stepfather-ish, you know, sort of stepmother's husband, which I suppose makes you their stepfather, sort of. So in January 1549, Seymour was arrested for trying to kidnap the king, to marry Elizabeth without the council's consent, and to make himself de facto king. And it's at this point that Ashley and Parry and Elizabeth are questioned. And I suppose it's also at this point that we should now try and do our final reckoning. What do you think we should conclude overall? Do you think we should say Thomas Seymour harassed the young princess sexually abused her or groomed her or actually should we be saying no this is all kind of fairly normal in Tudor sexual politics and we should not see this through 21st century eyes what do you Beth make in the final analysis of this whole incident from a 21st century perspective it looks very much like child abuse certainly grooming you know I think we can't get away from that if it's not a abuse it's close and he certainly is grooming her from a contemporary perspective she would very much be seen as equally at fault if it all came out perhaps more so because the woman tends to be blamed more in the period for sexual immorality and that's what it would be seen as it's sexual immorality she is old enough to be married just about we're in a period where Actually, if a woman is raped, the best thing they can do is marry their rapist because otherwise they have had illicit sexual activity, regardless of consent. And, you know, I mean, we saw that with Mary, Queen of Scots, who is a queen. So, you know, Elizabeth would definitely be 
tarred if this comes out and it does come out you can see why they try and hush it up and i do think there is likely to be more in the depositions than is admitted to because i mean i think we can sort of assume that they haven't confessed everything that happened potentially i don't think we can see it as child abuse from a 16th century perspective which doesn't make it something that would have been seen as all right because it very much wouldn't because of course he is her guardian or at least married to her guardian he's responsible along with Catherine to ensure that she remains chaste you know she remains marriageable she remains pure so it's certainly not something that is any way socially acceptable but I think you know Elizabeth would be seen as equally or more blameworthy than Thomas in what is going on. Well thank you this has been a really interesting examination I suppose in the end of 16th century morality as well as their social practices there is so much detail of the reality of life in this period that's come out through looking at this one case and you've brought to it such an incisive and an astute analysis it's been fascinating if listeners want to look more at the details of the case I will remind you that Elizabeth's book The Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor is the place to go because it goes into even more detail than we've managed during our conversation but Elizabeth thank you so much for joining me to talk about this today well thank you very much for having me it's been such a pleasure thank you so very much for your support for not just the Tudors please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts I'd be delighted to read them And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content, then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.